This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by Assistant Editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. Scott, good to see you. Yes, thank you. And as always, joined by Sarah Libby, Managing Editor. Hello, Sarah. Hello. I'm speaking at a normal cadence. (laughs) Thank you. Coming up on the show this week, it's been quite a week for San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore. Gore and his team are getting backlash from across the country after they shared a video of a deputy they claimed overdosed on fentanyl simply by encountering it. The thing is, toxicologists say that's impossible, so you can add that together to a pretty dumb little scandal that's that's really kind of interesting. Also, the sheriff told San Diego police last month that they could resume booking people accused of misdemeanors into local jails, but they would not tell us what crimes can get you booked into local jails. And finally, this all comes out after the sheriff announced he wouldn't be running for re-election, and almost immediately a bunch of prominent Democrats pounced on the chance to endorse his chosen successor. Why they did that, and more coming up. First, Andy, we have an update on a story we've been following. We finally heard from Jim Neal, the broker accused of an illegal conflict of interest when he helped the city buy a building, purchase a building. No, wait, not that one. Eh? The Housing Commission. So Jim Neal, let's, let's refresh everybody quickly. And what did he actually say, Andy? So very quickly, the... He is alleged to have signed a contract to help the, the San Diego Housing Commission purchase a hotel that would be per, uh, transitioned into housing for homeless people. After signing that contract, he is alleged to have purchased 40,000 shares in a real estate investment trust that owned one particular hotel in Mission Valley and then helped the San Diego Housing Commission purchase that hotel uh, at a price point that there is some evidence was elevated, potentially, uh, and at which point the value of that stock purchase escalated significantly, and that this was this uh, violated state conflict of interest laws. The city attorney of San Diego uh, late last month, I believe, or no, just a week ago, just a week ago, she announced a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit uh, for uh, what she called his fraudulent misrepresentations to the Housing Commission and this violation of state conflict of interest and disclosure laws. He had been silent since we first broke this news three months ago. He had been silent last week when the city attorney made this announcement. He came out with a statement yesterday. And I think by far the most noteworthy part of his statement is that he says that he not only told senior officials at the Housing Commission about his investment position, 
but that they signed off on it on it and told him it was okay. Now, that is a significant change in the facts of the case as we understood them. The facts of the case that we understood them owed to a legal analysis performed by the Housing Commission's legal counsel that I had reviewed prior to a story I wrote three months ago. That that document says that two San Diego Housing Commission officials did learn about this, but neither of them could say when they learned about it, whether it was before or after the hotel transaction, and certainly neither of them were said to have signed off on it. So this opens up a big who knew what and when did they know it question for the Housing Commission specifically. And I would say takes the focus of the scandal off of one rogue broker who seems to have, you know, allegedly violated these these laws and on to the San Diego Housing Commission specifically and what they knew, when did they know it, what role did they play in this problem, did they do enough to prevent it, etc. Yeah, he's saying, yeah, I may have invested that money, but they told me it was okay to, they knew about it, and that seems bizarrely parallel yeah, to another that just sa- that just sounds really familiar <laughs> it's amazing just, <laughs> yeah. i can't put my finger on why the, <laughs> those circumstances are just you know itching inside of my brain are you thinking about another real estate transaction sarah yeah maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh and it's worth pointing out that like so his his statement does sort of elide one critical distinction. He says, what do you mean I violated disclosure laws? I told him. And much as Jason Hughes used that same defense about a month ago when we were learning about the fact that he was paid $10 million for work that had been previously represented as volunteer work, uh, telling somebody is not disclosure. Filing a Form 700 economic interest disclosure that is uh, reviewable by the public. That's disclosure. So, yeah. So, uh, if you're well, going to make a bunch of money, yeah, while serving the public, you need to disclose it, and ideally, it needs to have been the result a of a public vetted process, competitive contract. <laughs> yeah, and so now. In just like in the case of the 101 Ash Street, though, while that remains true and and does not absolve him of any sort of obligation to file these economic interest disclosure forms, uh, it does, just like Jason Hughes's allegation that he told the Faulkner administration that he wanted to be paid on this transaction and that they said it was okay, in, in both cases, that raises some very significant political questions about essentially a cover-up or a potential cover-up over this thing that we've been talking about for a little while now, in addition to the the existing issues about disclosure and And conflicts of interest. Before we move on, those questions seem to be on the minds of some of the commissioners of the Housing Commission themselves. Yes, and one member of the Housing Authority, otherwise known as the San Diego City Council, um, all four, so three members of the San Diego Housing Commission and City Councilman Chris Kate all said that some version of this is the first they're hearing about the fact that 
uh, San Diego Housing Commission staff allegedly knew of this transaction in advance and signed off on it. One of them, San Diego Housing Commissioner Ryan Klumpner said, that's either false or we as board members were not given crucial information about this case. And, and City Councilman Chris Cate said, this is significant new information that he hadn't been told yet, and it requires an investigation to figure out who knew what and when. So I have no reason necessarily to disbelieve those people that they didn't know um, or that they weren't told. But can you explain to me how the legal analysis plays into this in which it's kind of like vague and murky and says something to the effect of like, at some point it became known that he had made this investment and, and there were inklings, you know, some staffer said like, well, sure, I knew that he did this and it was weird and I thought I wasn't allowed to do it, but that perhaps he was. And so there, you know, it seems a little like a gray area on there were people who knew. Yeah, I mean, somebody knows, right, the answer to this question. I, I think what we're getting, what we're f figuring out here is, and we've talked about this a lot over the years in a lot of these complex bureaucratic organizations, is the oversight boards are often very reliant on what they are told by staff. And in this case, that that what they were told by staff is basically that legal memo, some follow-up uh, questions and answers from uh, housing commission staff in response to questions asked by the city council. And I actually do have a correction to make that the, uh, the, the revelation about two staff members knowing about it but not being able to remember when and not necessarily remembering that it was a problem, that actually came about in follow-up questions and answers from the city council, not in that initial legal memo, uh, I should say. Um, and so, yeah, I think like basically to put a finer point on what you're asking is like, they're in the room that they they are tasked with overseeing it. If they're given complete or incomplete or vague or like as in this case, very passive voice information about this this stuff, they're entitled to ask more questions. They're entitled to to provide greater scrutiny. Um, but you know they are not themselves an investigative body, and they are to some degree at the mercy of what of what the housing commission tells them. And so um, I think. What Jim Neal's uh, statement does is, is, as we said earlier, puts the spotlight on San Diego Housing Commission staff and its leader, Rick Gentry, about what he has told the Housing Commission Board, what he has told uh, the San Diego City Council and its role as the housing authority, um, and whether they've been sufficiently forthcoming and whether they handled whatever information they may or may not have had adequately um, or whether Jim Neal is saying something that is not true. But he insists that he has evidence to corroborate all of these claims that will come out over the course of litigation. I asked to see that evidence and was rebuffed, but uh, they, they tell me that uh, we will see it in due time. All right. Last week, San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore and his department released a rather shocking video of a deputy and uh, another deputy encountering fentanyl and then one of them being overcome, at least allegedly, by it. A couple seconds later, he took some steps back and he collapsed. 
I ran over to him and I grabbed him and he was Odin. That, of course, generated dozens, maybe hundreds of headlines and stories about, you know, just the video and just how shocking it was, what, how dangerous fentanyl is. Now, there's no question fentanyl is very dangerous to ingest and to do, but uh, there's been a lot of pushback over the years to this idea that just encountering it, just smelling it or just touching it can kill you. And in fact, the American College of Medical uh, Toxicology released a statement recently uh, that said fentanyl and its analogs are potent opioid receptor agonists, but the risk, risk of clinically significant exposure to emergency responders is extremely low. To date, we have not seen any reports of emergency responders developing signs or symptoms consistent with opioid toxicity from incidental contact with opioids. And so, of course, there were a bunch of toxicologists, doctors, epidemiologists, journalists who study the opioid epidemic across the country just slamming the sheriff's department and the New York Times ended up coming out with a story for this video. And uh, it really developed a significant backlash, even locally. As News A's David Godwinson reports, Gore backed out of media interviews this morning, set up so he could respond to the criticism. All right. What is going on here? This was such a banana scandal to erupt. Uh, a lot of the research, by the way, about this situation is done here at UC San Diego. Uh, here's one guy, Peter Davidson, uh, spoke uh, recently in one of these reports and statements that they're just worried that uh, people who are responding to opioid overdoses or situations might be reluctant to render aid to people if they feel like they might die. Additionally, he said, quote, we found that many agencies are spending large amounts of funding on extreme personal protective equipment like hazmat suits to eliminate the possibility of dermal fentanyl exposure this money would be better spent elsewhere. So it kind of got out of hand. Now, the sheriff's reaction, Sarah, was quite interesting. He basically acknowledged right away that, like, oh, he just decided it was a fentanyl overdose. We don't actually have any proof that it was. Yeah, I mean, the entire incident uh, brings up a lot of just a mountain of questions. Where do you start? And then um, Gore's response to the backlash unleashes even more questions. And so first, like you said, his contention that uh, he was the one who decided that this was an overdose and he decided it so definitively that he recorded an entire PSA that they willingly released publicly about it. And boy, is that strange that you relied on your own expertise when you're not a doctor. But also, um, so I believe... Uh, the sheriff uh, that the deputy was with administered Narcan, um, which is, you know, the nasal spray that can counteract um, an overdose, and that didn't have an impact. And so if the drug that you administer to counteract an overdose doesn't produce some sort of response, why would your assumption be that this was an overdose? Yeah, they did it again. Um, uh, Gore told the UT this. He said, quote, uh, I'm sorry, my mind didn't go to, oh, our deputy fainted or, oh, our deputy had a panic attack. It just didn't go there. What was the logical explanation? To my mind, it was an overdose from the drug, from fentanyl. 
One of the things that came out is that he said, look, I'll release everything. I'll release the camera footage because they released just the edited version of that. But then he also said he didn't know, which seems like maybe an indication that they don't have any actual tests to, about whether the, the deputy had fentanyl in his blood. And that, to me, is the most damning piece of this because, you know, again, I, too, am not a medical expert and I'm not ready to make assertions because I'm not a doctor. But you would have to think that if somebody came in presenting anything remotely like a drug overdose, that there would be tests. And so for me, that seems to suggest that he was presenting something so far from an overdose that they didn't even bother taking the test. It would be like x-raying someone's foot who came in for chickenpox, just like, well, what is that going to do? Otherwise, why wouldn't there be toxicology tests? Yeah, so this is a really weird one because on the one hand, it's not like a big issue. On the other hand, it's such a striking presentation of fact that could be and so authoritatively stated that for it to be wrong, that wrong, would be like, I mean, it would be hor horrific for a news organization to have a, a, a story like this essentially be so horribly you know, wrong that they'd have to essentially retract it and 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 deal with the reporters who who made the assertion, but um, but this is just this is very big and weird and and uh, also seems to it seems to reveal for the sheriff's department a a kind of groupthink that's also unsettling that like you can live in a world where the reality where I thought it was kind of well known that this was this was a not necessarily a real sort of myth that that there was a problem with the idea that if you encountered it you would get uh you would immediately die or overdose or whatever and and in fact they were so infused with that being the understanding of the situation that they didn't even question that they should point and put out this 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 video and 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 make this assertion I think that's right and you know um police so often hold themselves out as the experts on crime and the experts on the things they're encountering and to the point that they regularly testify in court and they say things like, you know, in my experience and in my experience doing this and, and that experience and, and their observations about what's going on are really held up as something very valuable and so that they would so willingly put out something that is wildly wrong is really troubling because what else are they wrong about? Yeah, it's worth dwelling for a second on the responses from toxicologists that were given to the New York Times story. Dennis Romero at NBC News wrote an incredibly thorough story, I thought. This is not comparable to stories that you often see that uh, you know take a closer look at some claim or another and you have disputed testimony from conflicting experts. This was like universal from a host of experts who said that is not possible to do. And I think you you can can see how what a consensus view it is from Sheriff Gore saying, I'm sorry, I just I thought this was possible and it appears that it's not. I mean, law enforcement officers don't often uh, relent 
un- under expert testimonial very often. So, so even that he was willing to do that indicates just how wrong this claim was and just how overwhelming the response was from those who actually know that this was simply a work of fiction, this, this video that they put out. On their own volition, mind you, this wasn't like a, a, a public records request that they were forced to do something or a lawsuit that they were forced to do something and then they tried to spin the, you know, the information with a, with a heavily edited video. They just on their own went out and said, look at this horrible thing that happened to our sheriff. Boy, fentanyl is so dangerous. And then like 12 hours later found themselves in a scandal. I mean, it's, it's such a remarkable own goal. Yeah, and it's it's telling on both ends of the spectrum because you're right that they don't often like relent um so quickly or even at all. And and on the other side, you know, people give a lot of deference to police um and and law enforcement officers in sensitive situations. And so the fact that so many experts were just so swiftly ready to speak out publicly against them, I think is also really telling. Yeah. So well to be clear, they have not retracted the claim. Um they released a a few documents. A lot of people called on them to release the entire unedited videos from the officers uh, who were involved. Um, they have not done that yet. They released incident reports, and I read through them, and they're, they don't illuminate. They illuminate the situation they encountered, but everybody who's reporting in there just says, like, he apparently, you know, overdosed. There was no particular uh, insight into that. So they haven't released anything that establishes that he overdosed, but they also have not retracted the claim. The video is still on Vimeo. Uh, I don't know how many views it has, but that hundreds of thousands and of course, was spread by other news organizations and others that that. And so, you know, if you're trying to tamp down on a hysteria, this didn't help. <laughs> and as I think a lot of the what motivated the toxicologists and others was that this could actually lead to people losing their lives because they're not getting aid because somebody's afraid that if they just touch them, they're going to die. And uh, not just in like the emergency response world, but that the policy response when a hysteria is created, and we saw this most acutely in the, in the 80s during the crack epidemic, was that you get disproportionate sentences for one drug versus another drug because one drug is held up to be uniquely bad in a specific way. And look, fentanyl seems Yeah, let's to be, be clear. A, Don't a, a do that. bad drug. <laughs> it's let's, very yeah. bad. It seems like not, a bad drug a that, that is killing a lot of people. <laughs> right. But like when you say things that are not true which did happen during the crack ed- epidemic in the 1980s. You perpetuate stereotypes, you create problems that often result in policy responses that turn out to be bad because they're based on things that aren't true. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. 
So this was quite a little mess that I don't think anybody anticipated. Again, it was totally uh, an unforced error. Like they just, uh, they don't, they didn't have to put this video out. Uh, uh, they didn't have to do anything about this. And yet now they're dealing with one of the weirder scandals that I think I've seen Sheriff Gore have to deal with. Uh, this guy's in the news a lot these days. So we did a piece this week, Lisa Halverstadt, uh, about you know, before uh, coronavirus and the pandemic, there were a lot of people, especially homeless people that ended up in local jails uh, because of misdemeanors and other uh, incidents. And then because of decisions that the jails are so packed and because of the coronavirus, uh, there was a big effort to uh, let people out and to stop booking as many people. Now that seems to be changing, Sarah, but they won't tell us exactly how, right? Yeah, this was one that kind of started out as one endeavor and ended up going in a very different direction because I think um, when we conceptualized uh, looking into what was happening with jail bookings, it truly never occurred to us that that would be something um, that they would keep secret. And turns out it's not occurred to public records lawyers either. But so just like you said, you know, they changed their policies in an effort to respond to the coronavirus and keep people out of jail in this dangerous congregate setting. And so a lot of low level uh, misdemeanor offenses um, up to things, including like vehicle theft, um, were no longer eligible to be booked into jail. And so we were hoping to see how has that evolved over the last year and a half as the pandemic has you know, changed and and at one point improved. Um, and instead, the sheriff's department sent Lisa Halverstadt the document that she was looking for um, explaining the latest, most up-to-date criteria for what offenses are eligible to be booked into jail. And it was entirely redacted. It is quite an experience to get a record back from an agency and they'll be like, oh, we fulfilled the records request. And then it's all blacked out. It's just like, okay, thanks, guys. What a joke. Yeah, just say it's not eligible or whatever. But just they, say we're, we're yeah, gonna say we're going to withhold it. But they went through the trouble of like blacking out every single item and then giving it to you. Um, it's like art. It's it's truly like a Mondrian, you know, piece of art when you look at these like black boxes. Mm -hmm. It's it's really hard to evaluate not just how um, they've changed their policies because we don't currently know what offenses um, are eligible to be booked into jail. And the reasoning they gave us was that if somebody knows um, you might not go to jail for committing a crime, then people will just rush out to commit those crimes, um, believing them to be consequence free. Um, again, that's just not really how public records law works. Um, so we're <laughs> it's not it's not how public records law works and also like it's it seems like a silly understanding just of not how crime, crime works. works sure there's it, also that yeah, I'm, you know like i mean first of all i think people who don't commit crimes are not necessarily motivated that clearly by that sort of incentive and i think also people who do commit crimes are probably already aware of any sort of policy change that happens at least that's always been the assertion of like Prop 47, that right. there was an understanding that you don't go to jail for these things. And so people started doing it more. 
Um, and then it doesn't necessarily need to be printed in the newspaper for people to get that message. People talk to one another. That, that message travels. Um, the other thing I'll say is that like in so many different ways, COVID-19, horrible as it was, provided a, an odd laboratory for policy experiments that we could potentially learn from and make ongoing changes. This is basically, I think, the the conclusion from the the outdoor dining structures. Um, yeah, we ne- it never would have happened. Working from home. Yeah, working from All home. All aspects right. of our life. And and making this big of a change on these sorts of decisions about who deserves to go to jail for which crimes, I would imagine created a plethora of data from which we can have an open discussion about which of those things we should continue to put people in jail for and which ones we shouldn't. And so what the sheriff's response to this records request is really saying is, we will not have that conversation with you. I alone will decide. Lisa also reported that um, there are public officials who are very interested in that data and, and analyzing the outcomes and potentially making changes based on it or you know, deciding whether to make some of these changes permanent. Um, so I think uh, County Supervisor Tara Lawson Raymer and uh, District Attorney Summer Stefan have both said um, that they're kind of in the process of trying to understand some of this data. Um, it's just that we don't have that data and we don't know the outcomes. And then there's also just the fact that um, the pandemic itself produced so many, you know, wild curveballs. Um that it's a little hard to say. Even if we did have the data, um, we're not dealing with normal times. It's not necessarily like a clean apples to apples comparison. So it is, you know, going to be kind of a work in progress, I think, for a long time, understanding how these policies have played out. Well, if uh, Sheriff Gore and he alone gets to make some decisions like this, then it's pretty significant that he is moving along. He announced, of course, two weeks ago that he was not going to run for re-election. He left it. I thought he was pretty clear in that statement that he would stay till the end of his term. But he basically said, my term ends at the end of 2022. But it's he didn't really say, I will stay until then uh, in that explicit way. Yeah, like, for instance... Sarah Libby, I have a deadline for a story that is yes. tomorrow. Uh-huh. Exactly. So um, right. you can fill in yep. the blank if you'd like. Exactly. Well, there you know, has been, uh, you know, obviously there's one guy who's ran against him before. Dave Myers was a top deputy in the sheriff's department, was there 33 years. Uh, and, you know, we, we covered him in many different ways. And then he became an independent citizen and became a part of the criminal justice reform movement in San Diego. And so a lot of people expect him to run. He has refused to say, to be clear, that he will run for this seat again. But it seems pretty clear he he will. He's got a political consultant who sends his statements out, for example. Um, the uh, But, and so that was going on. And then um, we heard rather abruptly that the sheriff's top deputy, Kelly Martinez, the top undersheriff, that she was going to run for this seat after all. But the probably the biggest part of her announcement wasn't that she was going to run. It was that 
she had already gotten the endorsement of many prominent Democrats, including the three Democrats on the County Board of Supervisors, Tara Lawson-Reamer, Nathan Fletcher, and Nora Vargas. And I think, Sarah, you saw that right away, too, and said, like, what's going on here? Like, did why did they all jump so fast on Kelly Martinez when there was this other guy running? And, like, who knows what might happen still? And did you actually vet that this person fulfills your principles that you hope for criminal justice and, and any changes you want to see? Yeah, exactly. So this happened, I think, maybe two days after the announcement from Sheriff Gore that he wasn't going to run for re-election. And two of those days were over the weekend. And so it really just seemed very clear to me either that this had all been decided a long time ago in advance or that there was not a lot of vetting whatsoever of... A um, panic, maybe. Yeah, but particularly at a time and from a group of people who have professed to care a lot about police reform and criminal justice issues. Um, several of them have, you know, pledged to support certain policies, are working to push certain policies through their respective legislative bodies right now. Um, for example, one of the people on that list was Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. She currently has a bill working through the state capitol um, to limit the use of police uh, projectiles, so-called less lethal projectiles, things like beanbag rounds, tear gas. Um, this is widely opposed by almost every law enforcement group in the state. Did she talk to tell Kelly Martinez about that measure? And did she secure, you know, assurances um, about the sheriff's department's use of those projectiles? Um, I don't know. She didn't talk about it with me. She declined to answer um, any questions. Um, Tony Atkins, the leader of the state Senate, um, has said it will be among her biggest priorities to um, push through this bill that failed last year um, that would decertify officers who commit serious misconduct. Is that something she discussed um, with Kelly Martinez. Did any of these people discuss uh, the sheriff's department's very troubling record of stopping and searching black residents at much higher rates um, than their share of the population? These were all questions I had. Um, and this is just something that really grinds my gears, if you will. Just like you don't have to put out a PSA about fentanyl, that's something they just did totally willingly, you don't have to endorse anyone ever. It is not a thing you're required to do. And it's certainly not a thing you're required to do a day after the guy says he's leaving. And so if you're willing to put out a public statement saying this is the person you should all vote for, I think you should also be willing to answer questions about how you arrived at that decision. And uniformly, all the people I contacted, save for one, we're not willing to answer any of those questions, but one of them did. <laughs> one of them did. <laughs> and he sure did. U.S. Congressman Juan Vargas represents most of the South Bay in the United States Congress for this area. What did he say? Yeah, so he um, was very willing to talk, and he was just very forthright about his reasoning. Um and he did say that he met with Kelly Martinez and and that he did ask her some questions about her record and her plans for the department. Um, so that answers that question, I suppose. But he he also readily acknowledged that 
the motivation for this, the primary motivation, um, was to dissuade people from voting for Dave Myers, who, again, hasn't announced yet, but he had a lot of negative things to say about Dave Myers. He called him things like unhinged and a nut job, which is just words you don't often hear from public officials, um, let alone people who are members of the same party. Um, and so I, I was just very taken aback by his willingness to say a lot of that on the record. Um, he didn't give a lot of specifics as to how he arrived at that conclusion. He did say, you know, he used to be somebody who was very um, far to the right, and now he's somebody who's very far to the left, referring to Dave Myers, and he held that out as a reason that he didn't believe he could be trusted. But other than that, not a lot of specifics. What do we know about Kelly Martinez? So she's the first woman who's this undersheriff, the top uh, deputy to the sheriff. She also left uh, or became a Democrat over the last year, right? Yes. Um, so I did confirm with the registrar that um, she switched her party registration very recently um, in November 2020 uh, at a time when other interesting political things were happening. I mean, the thing that you can say about the San Diego Demo County Democratic Party is that it it has not been a comfortable home for former Republicans. There's just no elected <laughs> officials in this county who used to be Republicans. So you could see how sure, that would be disqualified. Sure, 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 sure. That's a, that's a good joke, Andy. Been a major recruiting tool of the party has has been for people to, to convert. And... Uh, yeah, among among the endorsers were people who who switched parties. That's very true. In fact, in, the Democratic Party is not in small part led by people who used to be Republicans. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's quite an yeah. interesting uh, evolution. So so we'll be watching that. Uh, it's getting to the point where you know obviously it still feels early for next year's election. But if you think about it, the the primary is now only 10 months away for that seat. Sheriff's department has, sheriff has tremendous power. It's one of the few elected across the county, um, you know, DAs like that, and the assessor, of course, the powerful assessor. And so you, uh, th this is a big job, and uh, if nobody else emerges, uh, that's going to be a really interesting distinction. We'll see who steps up uh, and whether Dev Dave Myers um, gets in soon or not. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Punto. Keep up with all of our big investigations and takes on local news with the Morning Report, our most popular newsletter. Subscribe now at VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO, Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats is Assistant Editor. Sarah Libby is Managing Editor. And this show is expertly produced by Adriana Heldes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.